This short code podcast is a proud member of the MedEd Media Network. Inspiration, information, and guidance on your journey to medical school and beyond at MedEdMedia.com. Meandering in the margins of medicine, it's the short code podcast. Weird news, fresh views, helpful clues, and interviews by students for students. Subscribe to our weekly show at theshortcode.com. Welcome back to the Short Code Podcast, a production of the University of Iowa Carver College of Medicine. I'm Dave Etler. I'm very pleased to have two people in the studio with me today, people of, I'm sure, upstanding moral character and deeply held principles, though I have not met them before, so I can't really you know, for sure say that, but I'm going to make an assumption. These people are uh, University of Iowa College of Public Health student Karai Mahachi. Uh, He is studying epidemiology and he's here today because he's brought with him a special guest. Ms. Karen Goroleski is the CEO of the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, the largest international scientific organization dedicated to reducing the worldwide burden of tropical diseases and improving global health. Uh, Karen is with us today because she was invited to uh, the University of Iowa uh, by the College of Public Health. And I will take this moment to uh, thank Dr. Christine Peterson uh, for the opportunity to welcome you to the Shortco podcast. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. This is my first time here at the university. Is that, how do you how do you find it? I find it. First of all, the weather is great. So maybe I brought that good weather to you. You know uh, what? It's like that all the time. Is it like yeah, this? Definitely all the time? Yeah. 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 It's a, uh, I too am from the Midwest. So I feel very much at home here. Good. Yeah. Good. Kurai, uh, tell us about uh, your studies. All right. So I am a first year PhD student who studies um, sort of the interaction between tick borne diseases, Leishmaniasis, which is a tropical neglected parasite, and trying to understand how these two diseases sort of exacerbate each other and how they interact in people and animals. Um, so I do a lot of um, abroad work where I work in Ethiopia or I work here or Brazil, where we're trying to sort of see how these different tick borne diseases are sort of making Leishmaniasis worse or making it better. Well, uh, so Karen, what is the mission of the uh, American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene? So as you uh, pointed out, the we are the largest international society of tropical disease experts who our goal is to really put ourselves out of business, is to eliminate tropical infectious diseases. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a very lofty goal. Is it practical? Uh, well, we're just going to be inspired by that. Uh, and do what we can to eliminate these diseases that affect uh, various people throughout the world. It feels like the mission of um, many kinds of doctors is to put themselves out of business. You know, I mean, yes. at, it, at its heart, you want people to be healthy. And so yes. if you're healthy, you don't need doctors. Yes. It's never going to happen. But, yeah. Yes. Um, I think the word tropical medicine can be uh, at once uh, um, curious for people and mm-hmm. also maybe um kind of closes the door to think, well, we don't have tropical diseases here, so we don't have to worry about that. But we're we're in a very mobile world. We've all heard about, you know, you can, you know, a virus gets on a plane on someone uh, carrying that virus and it can be anywhere in 24 hours. We are a very mobile world in terms of just that ability, but also populations are moving around as a result of conflict uh, more and more. The world is more accessible. Mm-hmm. So diseases that were relegated to more one geographic location are really, uh, that's not the case anymore. 
Yeah, and, and not to mention you have sort of the vectors that don't really believe in borders or barriers. They, like mosquitoes, for example, they just fly up from the south um, and just bring new diseases with them. You have ticks that are moving along with animals that don't really um, notice what a border is or don't really care what, about what that is. They're just trying to survive. And so while they're moving, they're bringing in these new diseases that nobody really has paid attention to because they're considered, oh, not in, in this region of the world, but now they're in a new region. So yeah. all these bugs are looking for is a way to live. Yeah. Yeah. A way to survive. Yeah. So wherever they're hitching a ride and getting a new blood supply, a new host, they're there. Doesn't matter who it is. Yep, for sure. Um, so, Karen, could as ASTMH, um, well, because ASTMH is such a big organization that works so hard to sort of put itself out of business, what do you think are some of the major points that ASTMH sort of focuses on? So, is it um, advocacy? Is it research? Is it a combination of both? And how does it sort of do that? Well, first and foremost, we are the professional home for those individuals who study, treat, prevent, look to cure these diseases. Uh, that is the number one goal. But included in that role of, of a community for science is also the understanding that so much of science in terms of this kinds of research is funded by American taxpayers. Mm -hmm. So there is an understanding by the leadership, by our elected leadership, and has been for quite some time, that there is also the role of, of a professional scientific society and its members to be able to can relay to their elected officials, whether it's their own mayor or um, their federal or state delegation of leaders, why this work matters, mm -hmm. how this is a good use of U.S. taxpayer dollars mm -hmm. and what the United States uh, benefits from it, how it benefits from it. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's a lot of sort of working with elected officials to sort of try to get them on the same page of why we need to work on this, um, why it's important for the U.S. and for people living in the U.S. Um, what have what has been some of the barriers you've encountered while trying to sort of overcome that um, in regards to sort of translating scientific information, working with and working with scientists? There are a number of barriers, but the barriers aren't um, unsurmountable. Okay. Um, partly is the culture of science has not been one that has embraced advocacy. Mm -hmm. It has embraced further scientific study, publishing, mm -hmm. tenure, mm -hmm. um, key observations, moving the field forward. Mm -hmm. Those are all fine. And that is a key part of why science works. The other part of why science works is that there's funding mm -hmm. to fund the science. Yeah. So what the science community, I think broadly, and it, it's not just tropical medicine, but broadly, has been um, late to the table to combine talking about the funding with the reasons why the funding matters mm -hmm. and why this research matters. And ASTMH has recognized this. I've had the good fortune to be in this position for eight years, and they re recognized this before I came up, before I came along. Mm -hmm. So, getting back to those obstacles, I think what we see now is um, fruits of not talking about it for so many years and yeah. not making a direct uh, connection. Now we're on the defense, yeah. trying to explain ourselves instead of leading with the good work of what research is. It's American ingenuity. It's science and innovation on a global stage. It's saving lives. Yeah, it's yeah. 
investing in jobs, good mm-hmm. paying jobs. Um, and it's doing the right thing and helping to save lives. It's yeah. all of that. So the obstacle we have here is is that we're now trying to play catch up mm-hmm. with this. And that is, um, that's a serious problem right now. So what about the, uh, so, so you've talked about advocacy in terms of, um, I guess you could call it uh, policy. Um, but there's also, uh, is there also a public advocacy component as well? We are a small society, so we're not resourced to be able to um, work directly with the public. And this is where we believe that our researchers, our members are the ones that are best positioned to be able to talk to their own communities about why you do what you do. I come across many, many, many researchers who say my family doesn't really understand what I do. Um, my family they, doesn't understand what I do. And oh, I, yeah. you know. <laughs> I don't think my family really knows what but I do. <laughs> yeah. And, and I would say, well, whose fault is that? I guess me for not yeah. being able to explain yeah. it better. That's yeah. right. Um, or you, for not taking advantage of, um, you know, opportunities to, to do that. I mean, yeah. you, you talked about before how, you know, it really hasn't been a focus of scientists. Um, and this is true for physicians too. I mean, you, you know, you're sort of in my perception anyway, has been, you know, you have this ivory tower mm-hmm. um, and you do your research and that's how you do good. Yeah. Or you, help your patients and that's how you do good. But as you say, I think a lot of people are coming around to the idea that um, number one, it's easier than ever mm-hmm. to uh, get in touch with people in, in, in a sense, um, whether it's a podcast or um, whether it's more complicated forms of discourse. But um, yeah, it's, it's not been, it's not been a focus for mm-hmm. physicians either. And each of us are consumers in our own lives. And I, greatly appreciate when I have someone helping me understand what it is, you know, I bought a house recently. My mortgage broker helped me understand in terms I understood about the different kinds of mortgage opportunities. Instead of talking about the Federal Reserve Bank and what the mortgage rate is, I mean, it just and I appreciated that because I helped it helped me understand. And it makes me think that we all want to have a kind of a better sense of things so that we feel uh, a, a more of a level of connection and understanding. So do you do anything? Does the uh, uh, ASTMH do anything to um, promote among your members this communication aspect mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. the public? So the... Uh, the scientific conference that ASTMH does every year called TropMed has uh, uh, got a significant amount of competition for scientific abstracts and posters, mm-hmm. as you can imagine. And they dedicate a session for exactly me to talk about advocacy and communication. We also have uh, opportunities to take some of our members to the Hill, and we do a little debrief beforehand about some messaging. We've had a communications workshop. It's very minimal, I mean, in terms of numbers. So it can only be 20 people, and mm-hmm. it fills up really, really quickly. Yeah. Scientists realize that they're not good at communicating, but they don't know where to go yeah, it's to, hard to, to know learn where. this, because yeah. they're not going to yeah. learn it in the place where they practice or where they do their research, because everybody speaks this same complicated language. Yeah, mm-hmm. science is so they don't us. run into that confusion yeah, so in their day-to-day life. My, my yeah. feeling is that, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, my feeling is that um, science is all about precision 
Yeah. And, you know, communicating science to other scientists is all about precision and um, communicating to the public is less about that and more about broad concepts that, you know, Exactly. That are easy to wrap your yeah. that are easier to wrap your head around. I, exactly, I definitely agree. I feel like um, when we're working on papers or when we're trying to present in posters, we're always trying to have these succinct, short sentences that get to the point um, and really give that just the information. And we we don't focus on trying to give these broad pictures and explain it better. And I think that's something that a lot of scientists are, are trying to reconcile now, but are struggling to sort of figure out how to approach it. And I, I think the other thing that I've noticed is that um, we can't leave it up to the journalists yeah, um, because they don't have the background or the inclination, I think, in There's many ways. There's fewer of them to be able to devote right. to a particular beat right. like, like this. Yeah. yeah. So I'm glad you brought that up because the society recognized that, we, that uh, information to the non-science audience, to the public, is really important. And we give a society-level communications award to um, a journalist who has written a story about one of our uh, issues that helps to kind of further understand, you know, further the understanding of a tropical disease. So we've had journalists from the Washington Post or the New York Times uh, get recognized Mm. and they don't always accept the the little cash award that comes with it. Uh, They say they don't want to do that, but um, and that's fine, but we do want to recognize and reinforce the need for this. And what we are seeing is that there are fewer and fewer journalists who have that amount of time given to them in order to really understand what is a very complicated and deep subject. Yeah. They might be reporting on, you know, the local lack of trash pickup the day before, and then, you know, man by dog story, and, and then a tropical disease story. It's very, it's very difficult. So that's something that we're concerned about as well. Yeah. So tell us more about, you know, I mentioned the burden of tropical diseases. Um, tell us more about that burden. For instance, are there some ways that you can quantify for our listeners uh, about that, about that burden? So this is where my, my uh, I can't cite statistics because that's where you need to talk to one of the ASTMH members. But mm-hmm. what, what helps me understand the magnitude of this is that there's a direct connection with poverty. Mm-hmm. People who live in extreme poverty don't have, as I even look out the window into the uh, city here, you know, where there's an infrastructure in place. And I just washed my hands with clean water and there was soap right there. I mean, people who live in this extreme poverty don't have this ability to have what we consider everyday items um, close to us. You magnify that on top of being located in places that are quite remote. Um, Also, if they're not remote, you've got large populations of people living in very poor conditions where they don't have a voice. They don't have a vote. There's no champion for them. And I think the society and its members see themselves as champions mm. for these individuals who in some places in the world don't even, aren't even regarded as an individual person with rights. Mm. Yeah. And that, that human rights aspect flows through all of what the society cares about as a, 
as a professional organization as well as the individual members? I, I um, well, you, you, you mentioned these people in remote places um, or not so remote places um, who are poor and like the infrastructure, um, you know, their cities like the infrastructure. Um, the other thing that they may um, lack is the education to understand the challenge um, among this. I, I, I specifically am thinking of um, at the moment um, Ebola, which, um, you know, you hear, I, I hear some about um, on the news. And one of the things that I've heard is that there's a lack of trust yes. between the populace and the people trying to, um, uh, to help. To help. Mm -hmm. um, and I imagine that's not uncommon. Yes. Um, and again, it, it, the great job that I have allows me to be able to have conversations with some of the best scientific researchers in the world who are working on these on these very issues. And I've been able to learn of the this exactly that this this uh, lack of trust that we see in the United States as well as yeah. with people of color. So we can yeah. immediately get get on, on, and understand this. But you've got long standing history of colonialism and the white savior coming in and just trying to destroy a local local culture. Yeah, that's actually interesting because I I'm not sure I thought of it that way before. Um, I guess that's you know my failing as a as a as a white guy basically to not really think about this aspect of you know the white man came in and said you know this is how we're going to run things and you know and we're going to wipe out your culture and turn it into right, something else right why would mm -hmm. they why would they trust a, a yeah. bunch of people outsiders who come in and tell them how to live their lives mm -hmm. you know how to mm -hmm. bury their dead and for the the well-meaning very concerned white individuals or they too have had to learn how to better approach this, how to understand what the funeral related to Ebola, understand the funeral practices and understand the importance of those practices. And how do we sensitively help people understand and what can we do to adapt? You know, this is, this is good science, but it's good science in real life and mm -hmm. people's people's lives. And, yeah, yeah. Real, real life is messy. Yeah, real life is very messy. Um, so then how do you think sort of us as health professionals could better interact with those communities that aren't represented? Um, do you think we should maybe engage them more? Or so what are, what are some of the areas that we could improve upon so that we can better provide for those communities and sort of interact with them? You know, I think of a phrase that I heard a long time ago, and it stuck with me. Nothing about us without us. Nothing about us without us. So bringing in the communities that we're interested and in asking them, what is the direction? How can we help? What are your main concerns? What are you worried about? How can we work together? And here's, here's our plan. How would we roll this out? And I would think that when people are approached as um, a partner and mm -hmm. someone who's valued, I think that there's better chances of of uh, success all the way around. And I think research has lots of examples about people that have done that and established excellent relationships in, in communities. Mm -hmm. And that allows for other relationships to get built 
yeah. on a solid relationship because somebody took the time to really learn and understand. So for, so for instance, I'm recalling, especially, you know, with Ebola, um, you know, among the things that you, that you do as people coming in to help is to, um, get with the, uh, the local, um, leaders, um, first and sort of have that discussion with them. Okay. You, we're, we're all in this together. Um, here's what, uh, we need to do. How can, how can you, how can we work together to make those goals achievable? You know, I think it's for all of us in our life to not just come bursting in with, this is how we're going to do it. I've got it all figured out. We all have to learn. Otherwise, we're not going to have very satisfactory relationships with with anyone. This also brings to mind the the role that researchers have that they may not realize and may not have. Um, this may not have been a driver for them to do the work they do, but they are science diplomacy. This is science diplomacy. Mm-hmm. People who come in with no political agenda, only the agenda of improved health and how that establishment of a trusting relationship can do a lot to um, pave the way for further collaborations and relationships. Um, Three years ago with a previous president of ASTMH, Dr. Chris Plow, who's a malariologist works in Southeast Asia and in Myanmar in particular, we put together an event in Washington, D.C., where we brought in individuals from Myanmar, from the populist side, the population side, uh, and the opposition side, and the military. He told me this would have been unheard of years ago because these people were killing each other. But we were able to be that kind of neutral broker, that neutral person who could say, we're looking to use malaria as a way to um, bridge those two groups that had great political um, battles between the two of them. But talking about the elimination of malaria was a common ground Mm -hmm. and researchers were going to talk about it in a way that wasn't political. Mm -hmm. That is a, a perfect example of the platform that science can use, even though that's not the goal what we're looking to, what we're, the end goal is still the same. Mm-hmm. And along the way, you've improved, you've helped, or you've facilitated ways to improve relationships. So in a way, um, scientists are sort of, um, I guess, unifiers of communities as well, not just researchers, not just like healthcare workers or doctors were, were the people that try to bring together those communities to fight a united enemy that is infectious diseases or chronic diseases for some people. Mm-hmm. So I think that, that's mm-hmm. really cool. And I can see there's a there's an overlap or there a connection between the scientific world and the State Department yeah. for exactly these kinds of opportunities because we, we represent a different way of working with, with people. We're not diplomats, but it is a type of diplomacy. Yeah that I think can be better leveraged and, and better understood. Is there, um, you know, we, we tend to think about, um, you know, U.S. residents um, 
tend to think about this as a other, you know, problem elsewhere. Um, but why should we be concerned about tropical diseases um, here in the U.S.? This is a very good question, and it's a reasonable question for anyone to ask. The tropical medicine term is uh, is an old term. It's a real historic term. Yeah, it kind of sounds. It sounds historic, like it? you know. Yeah. Uh, and in when I've go to, uh, to congressional offices and talk to staffers, I typically quickly move off that term tropical mm-hmm. medicine because I can just see them doing a little phew. Not us. Okay, we don't have to worry about this. But I in. Instead, what I talk about is um, diseases that can move, given the world that we're living in now. Mm. So um, it's not just uh, the diseases of um, individuals who live very far away from <clears throat> from Iowa City or anywhere else, for that matter. It's the... Um, mission groups that go into a far-flung place and perhaps drink water that they shouldn't have or are in a lake where they pick up a parasite mm-hmm. um, and then come home with that unwelcome traveler that sure. they didn't think about. The rise of ecotourism, mm-hmm. people mm-hmm. wanting to go to these exotic places and be have a romantic adventure in the jungle under this waterfall and water that I would not be going into because of well, other a, things. Sounded pretty good up until that. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. Um, Peace Corps workers coming back uh, with dengue. Mm-hmm. Uh, corporate business is expanding. Global business is expanding. So you've got military personnel. As military, well. yeah. yeah. Thank you. the The uh, military personnel is always going to be in a place of conflict. Yeah, and that's where often the worst problems are in terms of public health. You're going to be in the place of conflict. That conflict is likely going to have lots of poverty, lots of health issues. And just because you're in a uniform does not give you any kind of superpower so Mm -hmm. that you're not going to get some diarrheal disease Mm -hmm. or some other kind of fever Mm -hmm. or leash or malaria. Yeah. Yeah. Some tick-borne disease. So... That's part of of, uh, the Department of Defense we all think of as having a massive budget, and certainly they do, but the piece that's dedicated to tropical infectious disease research is quite minuscule. I call it Mm. decimal dust. Mm -hmm. Wow. I like that term. (laughs) That group is a group that we um, talk about on Capitol Hill. You say that, you know, we need that kind of... uh, infectious disease research for groups like the Walter Reed Army Institute of Research, for the Naval Medical Research Center, for these groups that where these areas where they do this kinds of research. Because what we all know is that any advances that come out of the military will be shared with the rest of the public. Yeah. So while that's not their goal is to save the world, their goal is to save their troops. And by the way, wink, wink, we know that this is also going to be sure. Many many advances have yes. have come out of the military. Yes. Yeah. Every advance in malaria has come through the Walter Reed Army Institute mm-hmm. of Research. Yeah. So then, would you say um, our sort of increase in globalization, I guess, or our increased connectedness as people has sort of changed the way diseases move around the world? 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, I mean, we're working with with or against Mother Nature here. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Mother this Nature has always is going been a thing, to find right? a way. Yeah, this yeah. has always been a thing, right? I mean, you've yeah. got, you've got uh, you know, clipper ships traveling across the uh, Atlantic with rats carrying plague or yeah. whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, it's not a new thing, but yeah. it's ramped up yeah. significantly since those right. days, right? Right. Yeah, and think- now the communication. You know, we know exactly you know, the latest numbers of people killed with the Ebola outbreak in the, in the democratic Republic of Congo. Um, I I am puzzled why I'll, I'll just branch off into that. I'm puzzled why this isn't frontline news every day. This is a serious epidemic that has to get under control. Well, you know, a few years ago it was uh, front page news and this is, I, you know, I'm no sociologist, but I feel like um, this is the problem with how uh, journalism covers these sorts of things. Um, and I'm not, I, I don't think I'm laying the blame really on journalism, but you know, stories have a lifespan mm-hmm. and when they come back, it's like, well, you know, we already talked about that. There are so many other mm-hmm. things that we want to talk mm-hmm. about. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, there's a lot of competition in the information space. Yeah. Yes, there is a lot of competition. Um, And I think this is where groups like um, ASTMH and others can be talking about, we need to have this as front page news. We need to have people paying attention Mm -hmm. to this. Mm -hmm. This is another epidemic and there will be another epidemic of XYZ, whatever it is. And as a nation, we are not prepared for a big epidemic. the Ebola piece, we haven't had somebody, the, it was four, almost five years ago. And we had an Ebola, you know, someone with infected with Ebola was in Texas. Mm-hmm. So when it becomes a U.S. story, uh, that's when I think it that's gets when people lots pay of attention. attention. Yeah. 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 Even though there was like no chance that we were going to have any Ebola outbreak in the United States. There was a lot, of, was a lot of nervousness, uh, yes. despite yes. the fact yeah. that, I mean, even I, who likes to consider myself a little bit... Um, knowledgeable about stuff like this um felt it you know and and um but you know i guess deep in my heart of hearts i knew that it wasn't really that it's a frightening disease it's an awful disease people i mean it's reasons to be scared uh and i think we we can have a short-term memory you know we have this short-term memory here in the country as we move on to the next thing um and i've heard Dr. Tony Fauci, who heads the National um, Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, say that the the epidemic he fears most is flu. And why? Because he says we're not prepared. Yeah. 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 I mean, we tend to focus on, um, gosh, I mean, I remember reading the hot zone in the, oh yeah, in the, what was it, 80s? Yes. Um, And it was a, you know, very engaging story and very um, frightening story. Um, and very interesting story. Uh, I think even the author of that book now says that, um, you know, it wasn't intentional, but, you know, given what they knew at the time, it was sort of overstated as a, mm-hmm. as a, as a situation, but it mm-hmm. really grabbed my attention. Um, and now when I think of Ebola, that's what I think yeah. of, yeah. um, you know, this sort of out of control thing that we don't, and then there was the movie, but we won't go into Yeah. That. <laughs> well, and, you know, that it's great entertainment, right? I yeah. mean, I go to these things as well. Um, but, you know, in these movies, 
Brad Pitt is able to identify a vaccine at the last minute <laughs> as he breaks into WHO's offices. And within 24 hours, the whole world is like inoculated. Like, yeah. Wow, yep. this is amazing. It's all good. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yep. So, Meanwhile, like the flu vaccine takes a year to, to just get the right um, strain type and then it shifts slightly and it's going to take us a year to make another vaccine. Yeah. And, and your average person doesn't understand that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At least viscerally, you know, yeah. like they're like, oh, I got my flu shot, but I got the flu anyway. Yeah. You know. Right. Right. Now, there's a, a balance here because we've touched on a lot of things. Science can play an important role. And yes, science has a responsibility to help people understand and not frighten the bejesus out of people mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. same time, mm-hmm. but also help them understand that there are people thinking about this and investing in this and we're headed in the right direction. We need to be prepared. It's a tough um, balance to. You know, we have a we have a federal emergency management program, FEMA. Why don't we have one for outbreaks Mm -hmm. and epidemics so that something can be ramped up quickly Mm -hmm. instead of waiting for it to happen? And then we're trying to create everything from scratch. Yeah. Yeah. I think the CDC has sort of started trying to do that. Um, I definitely know they've tried to do that with vector-borne diseases where they have sort of these centers, Midwest centers that like focus on that. But I, I right, agree but that's that, within CDC. Yeah, that's right. it's still like a tiny a like faction of it. Program, you know, it's like okay, if we think about these as, you know, the CDC and NIH are the kind of protectors of the society of the of the nation. Um, think about them and kind of you know they're kind of like the Pentagon, right? Figuring out how to do all of this. Yeah. Well, then there should be a way to turn to an already ready to go. Reaction for reaction. Yeah. yeah. Do, what do we do? Yeah. You know? yeah. And yeah. WHO, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm saying things in it more simplified terms, but you know, if you think about FEMA, we don't have a FEMA for epidemics. Yeah. And it's a different way to think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's interesting about, you know, these, these groups that are prepared to go to, um, places of outbreaks um, my understanding, and I could be incorrect about this. My understanding is that that's not their full-time job, you know, that's, correct. Yeah. so, yeah. You, you know, they, they sort of go there when things happen, um, but they really hope it doesn't happen. Right. Mm-hmm. And they don't, right. they don't, ha- they basically are hoping they, that they don't have to do this thing that they yep. have yeah. trained to do. And there are definitely, you know, the Ebola outbreak in West Africa opened up a lot of eyes to the gaps. Mm-hmm that are that are here so there are definitely groups and and foundations that are looking at trying to um, identify better strategies and overall plans so it's not like people aren't thinking about it mm-hmm. but it just really hasn't gotten hasn't, pulled hasn't, together right yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah something we're still working on mm-hmm. yeah yeah well i want to take a break just for a second um because i have a message for our listeners and the message is that um we are selling t-shirts to uh, raise money for the National Alliance on Mental Illness. Um, and the reason we're doing this is because um, one doctor commits suicide every day in the United States. Physicians have the highest suicide rate of any profession. Among the reasons for this is untreated depression and other mental illnesses. And one major obstacle to treatment is stigma. That's why we are supporting the National Alliance on Mental Illness. It's the largest grassroots mental health organization dedicated to building awareness and providing support and education on mental illness, all of which can help 
end the stigma of mental illness that prevents so many people, not just doctors, from seeking treatment. So during this spring 2019 semester, we're supporting NAMI by selling merchandise at the shortcoat.com slash store, including this here t-shirt right over here. It's blue. There's a black one too. All the money we make on it will go to NAMI this semester. Your $15 um, supports that effort. Um, so go ahead and get yours and help NAMI in their mission at the shortcoat.com slash store. So what about non-infectious diseases, um, Karen? Is, is that something that the ASTM, ASTMH concerns itself with um, to any extent? Uh, the, the society, of course, is full of people that are working on and dedicate their lives to infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. But there is a growing understanding that there is you know, these non-communicable diseases, these chronic diseases as well. And where's the balance? Um, from a funding perspective, what I see is let's, let's make sure that we all on these different communities, the infectious disease and non-infectious disease community, that we work together related to funding and that it's not an either or kind of situation because this is not what we want to get into the health pie dollars for research and health is already limited mm -hmm. so let's not say hey they're taking money from us we need to do this or that mm -hmm. and it's something that i think that both communities continue to tussle over mm -hmm. um and we we probably need some counseling in that direction well I, I, help people understand that we're in this together and not trying to you know, take money from the other. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I asked the question because one of the things I've learned doing the show is that, you know, uh, th there are, um, there are chronic conditions that affect one's ability to, um, fight off infection. And so, you know, maybe that's a piece of the prevention puzzle yeah. that you guys, um, are, mm -hmm. are interested in. And, uh, I, I suspect that we'll see more sessions, at the annual meeting um, of ASTMH mm -hmm. that begin to bring in the role. There's always going to be an infectious disease role, but there's other yeah. roles yeah. as well that we now, as we begin to see how things are so interconnected. Um, and mental illness, mm -hmm. certainly a piece of the challenge of getting people the right treatment, because if you can't communicate with them or if they don't trust you mm -hmm. or they're mm -hmm. completely outside of a system, mm -hmm. you know, you've, you've got that aspect. The chronic disease aspect is another. Human rights is another aspect of disease. Poverty mm -hmm. is another aspect of disease. And we've had some discussions in the last day or so about One Health, yeah. the connection to animals. And yeah. disease moving yeah. from animals to humans. And how do we address that to understand the connecting points and the whole context? And yet, how do you not get overwhelmed with all of this so that yeah. you can focus on certain aspects in order to address it? Yeah. Well, your, your, your organization's field, it's, it's very interdisciplinary. I mean, you brought up veterinary medicine. Yes. Um, I mean, there's, you know, epidemiology, microbiology, virology, parasitology. Um, there's even logistics, um, as I understand it. Uh, ecology, education, we've already touched on. Um, I mean, it's a really big um, puzzle. Mm 
Yes. Yes. And I, I like that we refer to AS2MH as the big tent because mm-hmm. it's exactly, it's exactly that. And it's what makes it rich and it's what makes it hard mm-hmm. to work with because there's so many people, pieces, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, that you can come to that ASTMH annual meeting. I'll, let's just use mosquitoes as an example. You've got people who studying the DNA of the mosquito. How does the parasite work? Where does it flow? Uh, then you have people that study how the mosquito flies. Does it fly, you know, closer to the ground? Is it closer to the house? Is it a a night biter? Is it a day biter? Then you've got people that are figuring out vaccines or trials or the the logistics of getting medication to places where there isn't a continuation of cold storage. So refrigerated trucks are, we don't have any issue here with refrigerated trucks. Sure. Refrigerated trucks in Africa, Getting off of a plane, you're maintain. Are you maintaining that cold storage, mm-hmm. that cold chain, mm-hmm. all the way? Then you've got people that are developing insecticide treated bed nets, so they're looking at it from a different angle. Then you've got people there that are distributing the bed nets; mm-hmm. they're looking at it from a different angle. Then you've got the policy people and the funding people. So all of those along the way. So there's an aspect. All of that is connected, and there's an aspect that attracts, and that meeting is at. Our, those people are at that meeting. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like a massive, um, I guess, coordination um, grouping of people trying to sort of collaborate, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's all about collaboration at ASTMH, and it's all about sort of partnering and working with different people and understanding everyone's strengths and weaknesses, which is kind of interesting because um, when we work at our, indiv- like at our individual levels, we don't necessarily see how much collaboration goes into a lot of what we do in, in sort of healthcare as a whole. And I think that's something that ASTMH really sort of brings to light. Mm-hmm. The meeting, I see people sitting on the floor in groups all the time. Yeah. Um, uh, standing in the hallways, um, in the back of the room, in the sides of the room, um, talking with the speakers. I mean, it's all about grabbing a few minutes of time mm-hmm. with, hey, I'm thinking about this. And and the level of acceptance and openness from these very, very prominent researchers to talk to people who are coming up and interested and giving them, okay, yeah, we could talk for a few minutes. Yeah, it It's... Uh, it's a hallmark of the society. Uh, speaking of coming up, I mean, are there, um, is there a student arm um, of the ASTMH that um, is active? So the, the way the society is, um, our structure, uh, we have what's called subgroups. Mm-hmm. And there are, so y- yes, there's a student membership rate, which mm-hmm. is really cheap, $15. Um, and then there's a, called a trainee rate. So that's. Mm-hmm. Um, postdocs, residents, fellows, it's $25. Mm. Um, and then with those subgroups, those are five different areas within the society. So there's arbor virology, there's medical entomology, global health, parasitology, and clinical. Mm. So uh, I always encourage students, uh, even if they're just, I'm not really sure what I want to be interested in, well, maybe join two of those subgroups and start yeah. mm-hmm. to, it's a, it's a, a window into a very large society that's just a little bit more more manageable. When is your meeting? The meeting is uh, the week before Thanksgiving this mm-hmm. year at the Gaylord Convention Center in 
Maryland. Yeah. Just across the river from National Airport in D.C. Sounds like a good opportunity for students who are, uh, you know, we get a lot of, we, we have a, a, a pretty big pre-med um, listener base. And so mm-hmm. sounds like a good opportunity for students to, um, for not very much money, right. um, sort of get, attend, see what the ASTMH is all about mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and take part in, and, and maybe, uh, you know, kindle an interest um, right. when they are done with their, or as they go through their medical training. Yeah, I can definitely recommend as a student, like I go to ASTMH, I think last year was my first ever time and it was it was insane. It was it was amazing because um, I'm thinking to myself, I'm just a student. No one's really going to talk to me. But then I have people who work on understanding like huge aspects of the tech transmission route. And like people who I personally am like, oh, my gosh, this person is a legend. They're like, oh, yeah, we can go have a cup of coffee. And I'm like, what? I'm, I'm just a student. Like, <laughs> That's what? fantastic. Yeah, that's yeah. really great. So I would highly recommend um, for all those undergraduate students who are who are nervous about it. Just, yeah, come by. Well, I've. Everyone there is really friendly and really approachable, which is very interesting. Very fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it was an interesting meeting because he's left out the fact that it was in New Orleans oh over gosh, Halloween. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that was an experience. <laughs> that that sounds whole, cool. That brought a yeah. whole level of interest. Uh, oh so I, I thought of uh, many of our young Africans who come to the United States maybe for the very first time and their very first time is in New Orleans at Halloween. Yeah. That's quite that was quite an experience. Yeah, I think the best part, oh. um, or the most surprising part, was the opening where there was a band that just came through yes. the conference playing for everyone. That just blew my mind. I was like, oh, okay, this is how we're doing yeah. it. Was that a so setup? It's called a second that? line band. Uh-huh. It's a, a standard classic New Orleans type of jazz band. Oh, okay. And they led, they, um, they have trumpet and uh, drum. There's four or five. Yeah, and there's like, a, yeah. you know, there's a whole, whole history behind them, um, be, behind what they are, and what they do. So they walked across the front stage and the front stage is at the opening session, 3,000, 3,500 people or so, and walked across the stage, led everybody out across the street um, into the opening reception <laughs> and the hotels got it in on it. They added people on stilts. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was, it was, it was a show. Yeah, it was, it was like an uh, amazing and again, show. a scientific, a heavy duty I'm gonna scientific to, conference. You know, I do a conference every year. I help do a conference every year on writing and, and, and the humanities and medicine. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to work somehow, figure out how to do that here. That sounds pretty cool. <laughs> yep. Let me just uh, make a quick mention about the, uh, medical students. So um, we see the need for clinicians mm. um, to understand these diseases and be able to treat and identify these diseases. So we have a key, uh, what we call a Ben Keen Fellowship, and it is only for medical students. Mm-hmm. So we are making the selection right now for this year. But the goal is, and the society has uh, offers 20 or 25 of these fellowships where um, the uh, Medical school applicant will um, present an abstract or a research um, uh, study that they want to participate in in some other country. And ASTMH uh, awards these. So they get their airfare and some money to offset expenses, and they become a keen fellow. And what that is are, you know, people that can then be part of this group that look to each other for inspiration and career advice as well as being connected to the 
the review committee that are very prominent individuals. It's another way to inspire yeah. and get people engaged and maybe, you know, think, hmm, I think that this is the career path for me. That sounds like a tremendous opportunity. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Karai, uh, you work with leishmaniasis, is that? Yeah, right? so I do, a, um, I guess I do a lot of leishmaniasis research, but mm-hmm. it's more from the vector side and trying to understand sort of how the tick, because tick-borne diseases can co-infect at the same time, trying to understand how those tick-borne diseases sort of affect leishmaniasis and how that changes the progression of the disease. Yeah. Leishmaniasis yeah. is a neglected tropical disease? Yes, it is a neglected tropical disease. What does that um, mean? Neglected tropical diseases? Yeah. So these are diseases that don't necessarily have a lot of funding or research behind them. Um, usually these are diseases that are also found in the tropics. So um, Leishmaniasis is found in areas like Brazil, um, parts of sub-Saharan Africa, um, India, um, and they're they're there and they they do a lot of damage, but people don't really research them as much or as aggressively as they do with diseases like HIV. Mm-hmm. Um the other day, we actually had a discussion about this because malaria is a, is a major um, tropical disease and people are sort of debating, on should it be a neglected tropical disease or shouldn't it? Because it does have a lot of funding behind it, but it's still one of those major diseases that causes a lot of problems. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've read a statistic that, um, I think it was a CDC statistic, that 100% of low-income countries are affected by at least five NTDs yeah. simultaneously. Yeah, yeah. But- which is incredible. Yeah. yeah. And there's that connection with poverty. Yeah. yeah, definitely. It's it's there's no infrastructure to sort of help deal with these diseases. Um there's no funding behind there's not a lot of funding behind sort of understanding how to prevent them, understanding how they're transmitted. And so because of this poverty, because of this these um socioeconomic barriers, people are unable to sort of overcome these problems. Have you heard the statistic it's another C D C statistic that says that the cost for NTD mass drug administration programs is less than 50 cents per person wow. per year. Wow. No, um, that's crazy. I, I'm assuming that they're talking about current drug treatment and not, you know, projecting out to yes. the yeah. future. Yes. I'd imagine so. <clears throat> we have medications here that, that we give to every puppy. Yeah. 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 Without hesitation. And I think it's that same medication in a different, you know, format. Perhaps I'm speaking about something I don't know that, not that specific on, but it's that same same kind of medication. And the issue is how do you get it to people? Yeah, Yeah, because again, logistics is important. Yeah. Um, Yeah. You know, you you can you can say, oh, it's like fifty cents, but you actually have to get it to the population that mm-hmm. needs it, mm-hmm. um, and that's not always not very feasible. Easy. Yeah, I definitely. Mm-hmm. That being said, though, I think there are people doing some sort of novel or innovative methods. So, like mm-hmm. medication is generally the one of the better ways to do it. But some people have come up with interesting ways to prevent things, like guinea worm, which is another worm. Um, and what they've done is they've just encouraged boiling water and come up with these lifesaver straws, which basically oh, yeah, filter yeah. out the, the parasite. And that has reduced the burden of the disease in some areas by huge numbers, yeah. which is kind of crazy. So, And we're getting close to yeah. just fewer and fewer cases of guinea worm. Yeah, and yeah. I, I would be remiss if I didn't talk about President Carter's um, yeah. dedication to that. And mm. it's a huge piece of his work at the Carter Center. Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. What are the big successes then? in um in your fields um that you can point to like this is what we've managed to accomplish well i think um the eradication of smallpox yeah um which is nothing has come close since Mm -hmm. you know we're not there you know maybe Mm -hmm. we could be there with with uh guinea worm yeah um 
and as big of a success that is, it's kind of invisible to people. Because, well, it's not here. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean we talked right. about this. We've talked about this with, with you know, measles in the U.S. Yeah. You know, yeah. a lot oh, of yeah. people have never experienced yeah. a measles outbreak. And so it's right. Right. like, oh, well, okay, well, you're mm-hmm. sick. Yeah. You'll get yeah. better. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The meningitis vaccine is, a, is a, another yeah. one. Um, there's a, a whole geographic section across Africa called the meningitis belt. Mm-hmm. So the fact that there is a, a vaccine uh, for that. Um, and, you know, those are those are those, uh, you know, vaccines get a lot of attention for good reason. Right. Everybody, particularly Americans, want a, a silver bullet. Just give me a pill. Mm-hmm. I'll take mm-hmm. I'll take care of this. But we can't underemphasize the advances in sanitation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Clean sure. water. Yeah. I mean, without that sort of baseline, like the basic hygiene. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right, right. And that's the hygiene part of our name, which is another part of our name that is kind of, you know, comes up from another time yeah. individuals. You know, I always say ASTMH, we're very clean people, Yeah, yeah. but that's not really what the hygiene part represents. <laughs> yeah. Well, listeners, if you can come up with a better acronym for ASTMH, I'm sure that, you know, one that wasn't so burdened by, you know, old, I, I don't know. Well, that's why we call TropMed. Yeah. You know, it's a little shorthand is TropMed. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. yeah. That yeah. sounds cooler for some that. reason. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it, 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 other huge successes are are the president's emergency plan, you know, PEPFAR mm-hmm. um, to combat mm-hmm. AIDS, the president's yeah. malaria initiative, um, PMI. These are enormous programs that have saved hundreds of thousands of lives and at the generosity of the United States. Yeah. That's fantastic. Um, Well, look, uh, that's our show. Uh, We've been hanging out today with uh, Karen Gorleski, CEO of the American Society of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene, and also uh, Karai Mahachi, who uh, studies epidemiology at the College of Public Health here at the University of Iowa. Thank you both. Thank for you. sitting down with me today and talking about this uh, really great discussion. It's been fun. Yeah, yeah it's been a blast. Thank you very much for having us. You're welcome. Thanks also to Robin Petzold of our Global Programs uh, unit here at the Carver College of Medicine for helping set up the show for me. And I'd be remiss if I didn't thank you listeners for making us a part of your week for all your questions and for your t-shirt orders. If, we're n- if you're new and you like what you heard today, subscribe to our show on iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify. We love answering listener questions, so send your questions or whatever you like to the shortcoats at gmail.com or reach out on social media or you can leave us a message at 347-SHORT-CT. We'll talk about what you want to talk about on the show. If we made you smile or gave you something to think about today right now while your podcast app is open and I know it's open, give us some stars and a review. It's a free and easy way to be a friend of the shortcoat and helps us know we're doing the right thing. The show is made possible by a generous donation by Carver College of Medicine, student government and ongoing support from the Writing and Humanities program. Our executive producer is Jason Lewis. Our opening music is by Dr. Vox and our closing music is by Catmosphere. Talk to you in one week.